Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next edition of IHC Talk. And I'm joined again today by the Chromogen siblings, Dr. Belizzi of <laughs> Iowa University and Dr. Lagavi of MD Anderson. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for hosting, Michael. Thank you. You can find all of us on Twitter. I'm marnold underscore pedpath. Dr. Belizzi is at IHC underscore guy. And Dr. Lugavi is at Sonam Lugavi. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Kevin Zhang, a senior molecular scientist at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases. And we'll be talking about his recent paper in JCI Insight about the molecular detection of SARS-CoV-2 in formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded specimens. Welcome, Dr. Zhang. Thank you for having me. They yeah. say, you SAMRID. Yes, you're right. Set wow. With the emphasis on the Sam, like Uncle Sam. So you yeah. Sam. Wow. Yeah. And you know your Sam very well because I study a lot. I I I don't know any I don't know anything. Are you at home? Yes, in my basement. How is uh how is your lab? Is your lab affected by the COVID at all or you guys are going? Yeah, we this are is kind of this is what you're built for, right? Significantly. Yeah. We have lots of um, animal studies going. Sure. So our topic today, we've, we've not talked about COVID yet on IHC Talk. And our guest here is an author of a study that included not only immunohistochemical staining, but also in situ hybridization to detect COVID. We'll talk about that, but we always like on PathPod to hear about people, about how they got into where they are in their careers and things of that nature. So. Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, actually, I, I got my PhD from China. Then I joined the National Cancer Institute as a postdoc. I spent six years over there. Then I moved to HHMI, Geninian Research Campus at Ashburn, Virginia, as an um, um, image scientist. So after that, about five years ago, I joined the USAMRI as a molecular scientist, you know, working at the molecular pathology laboratory. What got you interested in molecular pathology? Actually, it's a long story. My, my background is not molecular pathology, but I have a very good molecular biology background. So I joined the pathology division of USAMRI. Then I start, at that time, they don't have the molecular pathology map at your summary. They said, oh, Kevin, you have the, you know, very good molecular biology background. Probably you can set up a molecular pathology map for your summary. I think, yeah, I think I can try. Then uh, five years ago, I started, you know, started from scratch, you know, build the map, started the, build up the IHC, ISH, Immunofluorescence and confocal images, all of these, you know, technique for the your summary. No, it's um so far it's um I really like it. I enjoy it, you know, especially when you see the signal from the tissue, from the samples, so you you always feel so excited. Wow, this is good, you know. It's uh, I like it, I enjoy, you know, my job. That's fantastic. So unlike Andrew, I'm very uneducated about, about your institution. So is it, do you guys just do molecular microbiology at your lab or do you do other molecular assays like molecular oncology as well? Okay, actually my job has two parts. Let me, let me go start from there. One part is we provide the molecular support for all the animal study performed at the summary. The other part is I'm, I have my, my own research direction. I'm, I'm interested in understanding the persistent infection of deadly viruses such as Ebola, Marburg, and the last virus. So we, um, we're trying to understand why those viruses can persist in specific organs like eyes, brain, and the testes. Oh. Yeah. So the sanctuary organs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this COVID nineteen stuff, this is just a side hustle. Yeah, it's um, you know, because right now everybody is um, yeah, it's a focus on the COVID nineteen. Of course, we, as especially with one of the, the infectious disease map of DOD, of course we have to. And it sounds like that the the goal of the USAMRID is to protect the army 
from emerging infectious diseases. Yes, not only army, but also yeah. civilian. Yeah. Population. Yeah. And you guys have the uh, BSL-4, so you can deal with the, the nastiest of the nasty. Yes, but, um, but COVID, SARS-CoV-2 can be done in BSL-3 naps. It's of a lightweight. Of course, we have yeah. BSL-3 and the BSL-4. Yes. So all my, all my BSL-4 friends, are they're, they're, they're looking to get through COVID so they can get back to uh, studying Ebola, which they consider <laughs> yeah, to be same. much more interesting. You know, yes. So I had a question. I was I was reading around a little bit earlier this afternoon, and I I found a I found a paper, and I wondered if if this was you. I uh, I study neuroendocrine tumors, and I found a developmental biology uh, paper about neuroendocrine cell development. Is did you work with uh, Stephen Hu at when you're at the NCI? Is that you? Yes, you're right. Yes, I was. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, my research direction is on um, adult stem cell phase yeah. mutation. So yes, you're right. So, so what caused what caused you to so was was that your postdoc? What caused you to? Yeah, that's my that's my postdoc. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, during my postdoc, I did lots of um, you know, stem cell biology, molecular biology, and microscopy imaging training. Yeah. Then I joined. Geninia Research Campus as an imaging specialist. I learned lots of you know, my you know imaging technique. Then after that, you know, I I joined the US family, you know, combine my molecular biology background, the stem cell biology background, and uh, my coscopy imaging background together started to build say molecular pathology app. Fantastic. Wow. That's that's awesome. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your your lab? How many how many folks do you have in your lab, and what are their backgrounds? We have um, right now we have one soldier, and one technician, and one research specialist, and of course including myself, we have four peoples. So in the lab, so basically we do at the moment we are very busy every day. Basically we we run institute hybridization and immunocus chemistry and the immunofluorescence staining and the confocal images basically every day. We process many, many samples. So for the because all of these samples are animal study samples. Animal samples, not human samples. Yeah. We only work on and animal models. Are you are you entirely focused on COVID right now or, or yes. you, can you tell us a little bit about about coronaviruses and what's unique maybe what's unique structurally about this coronavirus? So the SARS-CoV-2 belongs to the beta coronavirus which includes the SARS-CoV and the MERS. So all of these three viruses are quite quite dangerous to humans. SARS-CoV-2 about it has um positive sense RNA genome, it's a single stranded. So it has about 20, 20, 28 to 29 KB. It, it's small, it's very small. They have the single-strand RNA genomes. They have, especially, they have, it has spike protein. They use, you know, which the virus use a spike protein attached to the, the cell receptor, ACE2. So also they have the nuclear protein, MP. So for our Immunocus chemistry, we use um, the antibody targeting spike protein and the nuclear protein, MP. So we use several different antibodies to target these two proteins. Antibody basically does cross-react with, with both, right? Yeah, the, yes, the because we use the SARS-CoV antibody. Because, yeah. So, so that's, that's the secret to getting something like this done quickly is yeah. find something yeah. related yeah. And, and hope you can find cross-reactivity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then Kevin suggested that, you know, the next iteration, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that vendors will produce antibodies, at least attempt to produce antibodies specific to SARS-CoV-2 because yeah. it, it does have unique sequences. Yeah. Also for the ISH, for the RNA, because, you know, it is a positive sense RNA, we designed the probe, you know, which combined to the genomic RNA directly 
At the same time, when the SARS-CoV-2, when they replicate, they have to generate, produce, or call the negative sensor on A. So then based on this, the replicated intermediate negative sensor on A, based on this stream, they generate, produce a new genomic on A, which is a positive sense. So when we detect, when we do the ISH, we usually say, all right, I wanted to detect the genomic on A with SARS-CoV-2. At the same time, some PIs, some scientists, I mean, I'm more interested in the, the negative sense A because if I see the negative sense A, that means the virus is actively replicated in the tissues. So that's why we have, we also directed the assay, we could multiplex fluorescence in situ hybridization to, to detect both positive sense and negative sense only at the same time on the same tissue sections. I thought that was really cool that Very that cool. that since it has to since it's a uh, positive sense RNA uh, yeah. virus that to replicate it has to it has to make a reverse copy of itself. You're right. And then and then make the progeny from that. So you had had this novel this novel target this negative sense that you yeah. could that you could yeah, target also, to, to show other, that the virus was replicating. It's quite, um, we really like I really like it because. We can quantify the you know the ratio between negative sense A versus positive sense I. We can see how you know how the virus replicate during the during the disease's course, in initial stage, and you know, the peak stage, or at the stage when the virus got cleared. So it's a very it's very interesting assays. So if you have probes that target each strand, the positive yeah. and the negative strand, do you have to then make sure they don't overlap so they don't stick to themselves? Yes, you're right. That's a very good point. Yes. We, in order to avoid the, bind, the probe binding each, each other, we you know, designed two probes against a different area of the genomes. So, yes. Can you tell us how different is SARS-CoV-2 from SARS and MERS? Um, for the SARS, it's about just the genus is about the conservativity is a seventy percent. I think for the most, I mean, I don't remember it correctly, which is less than seventy percent. Yeah, it's maybe forty, forty or 50. yeah, around the forty, forty-five. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I don't remember. How did you work with RNA scope to uh, to develop the 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 two positive sense and the one negative sense were they were they already working on it or did you guys work on it together? Actually, I started started work with Armscope. I I'm one of the earliest customer of Armscope. I because yeah. in 2015 or, or I applied the Armscope for detecting Ebola virus in the monkey tissues. So we, you know we use Armscope to detect different other yeah. virus, Mabuglasa. So once SARS-CoV, I think it didn't, at that time, is generally, at that time, when I see the sequence of SARS-CoV-2, I talked to the ACD people. I said, you guys have to design a probe to detect SARS-CoV-2 at that time, because we don't know, there's very few cases at that time, but I said, you know, we should detect the probe. So after, I, they, they designed their own probe. So later on, I said I need another probe, a little bit longer probe. I want to be more, you know, more sensitive. So I, I, I requested them to design additional two probes, which is, um, you know, is a little bit longer than the original ones they have. So it turns out that this two probe is much sensitive than the probe they have. So the ones that you dis discussed in your paper, there yeah. was the 40s easy and the 20s yeah, yeah, yeah. easy. Yeah. So the 40s easy is more sensitive right. than the 20s easy ones. Is the 20s easy the one that they originally designed? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. And you had them design the negative sense. Yeah. Then I have, yeah, I have got them to do that negative sense. Yeah. Are, those, are those all commercially available or just the 20s yes. easy? Yes. They are commercially available. You just contact us, the tell the catalog number you wanted to buy them. Yeah. 
the commercial. All of these reagents are commercial available. There's another, there's another really important uh, thing about this uh, paper in terms of if, la if labs out there want to develop their, their own IHC for uh, SARS-CoV-2 is uh, Kevin used uh, commercially available uh, yeah. primary antibodies. Yes. Um, yeah. And so there had been a few case reports right out of the box that showed immunohistochemical positivity for the virus, but these were all using antibodies that were generated generated in-house. I'd like to know, you know, how, how you found these, because you tested, you tested a bunch. Since, um, you know, your summary started to work on the, the you know, the, the COVID-19, you know, so for the planning purpose, I, I said uh, we need the assay, we need the ICH, we need the fluorescence institutization, all of this assay ready before we received animal tissues, animal samples. So at, at that time, there's no any like SARS-CoV-2 specific antibody, but we know, you know, SARS-CoV and the SARS-CoV-2, they're very, they have very similar, they're very, especially for some genes, they're very conserved. So that's why we think we probably we can find some antibody that can close react to the SARS-CoV-2. So that's why we test a bunch of different SARS-CoV antibodies. Eventually, we, we identified two of them that can close react to the SARS-CoV-2. Also, at that time, we wanted to you know, publish something. You cannot just, um, because in-house antibody is always limited amount but for the commercial one everybody can just spend a you know a couple hundred dollars to buy it so i just wanted to those reagent it's is available to the whole covid19 field so that's another purpose we only focus on those commercial available you sort of discuss this uh in the paper oh we're we're imaging infected cell pellets we think that these assays will be applicable to ffpe human samples and animal studies Yes. But we don't have that material yet. And so now I imagine you're, you're working on the follow-up is, is working with other investigators who have animal models of disease and are yes. doing the imaging we, for them. Yes, we apply, you know, in order to test, verify those assays, we use just use the cell pellets, mm -hmm. you know, embed them as the same method as we did for the, for the animal tissue or human tissues. So, so far, actually, we tried those, all of these assays, including IHC, ISH, IFA, on animal tissues. They, yeah. work very, they work perfectly. Can we talk about the logistics and the timeline of how you got all of this testing started? Where did you get samples from initially? You know, I think your summary, when you saved the virus from CDC, you know, you, you know, CDC, once, you know, they isolate the virus from the first patient in the U.S., then distribute the virus to the different research lab. Then, you know, we need to amplify the virus. Then we infect in the, the viral cells. So then at that time, because we don't have any tissue samples, we don't have any other samples. The only thing we have is infected cells, viral cells. Af African green monkey kidney cells. That's the cells we use it for amplify the virus, the virus, the virus talk. So that's the only sample we have. So then, of course, all our sample is IFFPE. So what we can do, then we, we only can embed those cell pellets, you know, in the, in the pellet blocks. So, so that's that the whole process is we move really really fast because at that time it's about it took us less than one week to get the samples from the infection to the embed then we already purchased antibody i would say that all the assays take us less than 10 days then then we write up that manuscript about one week then then post in the bio the whole process is from, you know, I would say the last um, three weeks. I figured you must have had to move fast based on when your paper came out. That's yeah. impressive. 
the validate all of these essays, I, I already started to write up the abstract introduction. So, so it's um, basically when, when we collect the data, we, I just need to put in the manuscript. This is a question to both Kevin and Andrew. If someone wanted to start from scratch and validate the, you know, the, the antibody test uh, for IHC for a CLIA lab, uh, what would that process be like? How long would that take? How many um, you know, controls would they have to run? Um, I mean, is it basically how, how easy or how difficult is it to do uh, for a smaller scale lab? I think it's quite, it's not a self, because I see it's quite a straightforward. They are not so, um, you know, you know, ISOP or wearable online, you know, but the most important part is it take like a couple of days to validate anybody. You just need to, but you, you do need a very good positive control. Make sure you, you have very good positive controls to test the antibodies. For, our, for us, we have, you know, we infect the cells, you know, in better cell palace. So, but another, the key step, I would say just this step is antigen retrieval. Because all of this I5P tissue, you know, so they cross-link all the antigens, all the proteins, they cross-link together. So if you want or anybody bind to the epitope, you want to do the antigen retriever to reverse the cross-link between among the proteins. You want to expose the epitope to the antibodies. So usually we, you know, do the, do the antigen retriever for the IFFP samples. For the, for the commercial antibody, I would say just, um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, um, take a couple of days to validate it you know, if you have good controls. Yeah. Okay. So I can speak from the perspective of, uh, of the director of a diagnostic lab. And, <laughs> and, and this is, I'm reflecting the, the experience of, of my colleagues, laboratory directors across the country. And uh, the challenge is, uh, putting together the validation cohort. And okay. so I, I, haven't, I haven't released the, cl the clinical test and, and I, don't know, I don't know if any of my colleagues that are, that are working on this have released the clinical test. Kevin's funny, he sounds like Joe Corey, says, oh, it's, it's easy, everything's easy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably different. Yeah, it's, tec it's, it's technically, no, it's yeah. technically, it's fairly straightforward. The most important thing is, you know, knowing that the antibody, the antibodies work. And so Kevin has identified two excellent antibodies uh, to carry out validation. And interestingly, the antibody that I, that I use uh, is, is a polyclonal from Novus. So it's one of the, it's one of the same vendors of one of the antibodies that you, uh, that you evaluated. Mine is to the nucleocapsid protein, a specific segment of the nucleocapsid protein. We identified it the same way. These were all antibodies that were commercially available because they were developed around the time of, uh, of the SARS epidemic back yeah. in 2003. Yeah. But the problem is I'm sitting at two positive cases and all these COVID-19 positive, PCR positive patients that are IHC negative, the, uh, I mean, there's, there's two answers. There's, there's uh, guide, guidance from the CAP uh, that has a white paper uh, that says for uh, diagnostic assays that your validation cohort for IHC must consist of, or should, I should say, should consist of 10 expected positives and 10 expected negatives. So I'm trying to get at least close to 10. Um, and, and then, but then the other piece is that for rare antigens, and this is a rare antigen, yeah. That uh, at the laboratory director's discretion, that the laboratory director uh, can decide that a smaller validation cohort is justified, and then just has to explain, uh, explain the you know the nature of the their the ra rationale of their decision. Yeah. I'm still personally uncomfortable with two cases. Uh, <laughs> I'm, and then Kevin mentioned something else that's that's uh, that's really that's really important. Um, 
I'm between, I talk to scientists all the time, but I don't have access to in my, in my lab, uh, cell cell culture so the wonderful uh controls that kevin mentions are these uh infected cell cell pellets yeah um and kevin can make those in his in his lab and i Mm. i suppose it's possible if i reached across the campus uh it would take an active god but i could potentially (laughs) I could potentially get some 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 cell pellets produced in the validation cohort. We share the the cell pellet samples with um, you know, multiple labs. They request yeah. they request us. They wanted the positive control to yep. you know to verify to validate the assays. We we share. We send. Yeah. If you need, just you know, we 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 can share the samples. This is important. Ex- definitely expe- uh, expect an email from from me because uh, I would like to, if if you're willing, I would like to to help. One of the things that I that I do in and I have sort of a national role uh, in diagnostic immunohistochemistry. I'm the chair of the College of American Pathologists Immunohistochemistry Committee, and so I'm just a connector. So. Uh, I have a lot of people reaching out to me uh, looking yeah. for advice. And the main thing, the first question was, which antibodies should I, u- should I use? And then now the more pressing question is, how can I get my hands on, yeah. uh, on sufficient material to validate these assays? And so we're all sharing uh, among ourselves. So, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll reach out to you and see if we can, we can yeah, do something yeah, to, benefit, to benefit the community. I, I will say that this is never going to be the principal. This is not a principal diagnostic assay. This is this is even though even if it's a clinical test in my lab, it's it's you know it's to study the to understand the pathogenesis of disease. Mm-hmm. It would be useful in the in the autopsy yeah. uh, specimens to under to try to understand what we're seeing and the timing of in the timing of what we're seeing. So so not. Andrew, I, another idea is because when we, you know, do, do the validation for the immunochemistry, we usually say use the patient sample which are PCR positive, use those samples. Actually, even they are PCR positive, it's still possible there's no signal from those lung samples. Absolutely. So another, the another way I would suggest is probably you want to do the ISH first for those human patients. If you see ISH positive, then you move to the use those samples to validate your immunochemistry. chemistry. Because ISH, especially for the unscope ACD, they're very sensitive, yep. it's very reliable. So basically, if you see the signal, which indicates there is a viral infection in the samples. And then I'll mention just in terms of in terms of uh, unique challenges, the uh, the RNA scope technology is amazing. Uh, yeah. And it's penetrated, it's definitely penetrated diagnostic laboratories. IHC is ubiquitous. You know, many, not all, but many diagnostic labs do immunohistic chemistry. But unfortunately, the RNA scope to be able to run those probes, uh, you can do them manually, but they're, they're incredibly laborious to do manually and disruptive to workflow. So almost all immunohistochemistry and in situ uh, that's that's done in diagnostic labs is done on autom- on platform automated platforms. Yeah. And yeah. so the RNA scope, uh, there's only a couple platforms that it can be done on. So it can be done on a, a, a Ventana Discovery platform, which is a research only yeah. platform. Yeah. And these are diagnostic labs, and so that's a challenge. But it can be done on the uh, Leica Bond series. And so I happen to have a DACO auto stainer Link 48, mm-hmm. uh, three of them actually, and I have a Ventana uh, Benchmark Ultra, but I don't have a Leica in my yeah. shop. So I don't, so I can't do RNA scope, uh, which is a, which is a bummer. Uh, but uh, so it's just another one of the unique challenges in the in the community is that you you know laboratorians have to make do with the resources at their 
at their disposal. And, and all these different platforms have strengths, relative strengths and weaknesses. And uh, I wish I had a like a bond really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, another, another concern is because ISH, iScope is, um, you know, the cost mm-hmm. is a little bit higher than the IHC. So when you look at the, when you are able to detect the virus by uh, IHC mm-hmm. uh, in the tissue, uh, does the, the quantity of the virus that you're able to detect, does that correlate at all with the pathologic changes that you see in the tissue? Yes, no. I would say yes and no. Yes, because you're right. If you see you know, more viral RNA or viral antigen, of course, you can see more severe pathology in the tissue. At the same time, when you see Depends on different time point. So we can see, you know, the pathology in the lung, but when we do the immunochemistry and the ISH, we couldn't see any signals. Yeah. What I'm thinking is, um, I think it's because, you know, after some time point, the virus get cleared by the host. As far as I know from the animal models, the virus somehow they get clear very very fast by the host yeah. but they are during that short time of infection they can cause significant damage then get cleared by the host that's why when when our our pathologist is oh i can see very severe pathology and lesions but um, but when we do the, all of these different type of detection we couldn't see the wild RNA, wild antigens or wild particles at all yeah. Let me see if I understand this correctly. So a lot of the, the sequela and the damage is basically because the host response persists even after viral, viral clarification, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, they, like, uh, they, you know, they, the immune response right. causes the further, t- you know, organ damage, cytokine storm, all of this immune response, they, you know, they, they cause just lots of damages of the host. The couple yeah. positive cases that I've seen are, you know, they have DAD uh, and there's virus and it's in type 2 pneumocytes, um, including ones that are desquamated into the alveolar spaces. But I can't, I can't look at the slides beforehand and say which tissue is going to be positive and which tissue is going to be negative. Uh, obviously, this is of great interest to everybody, right? It's sort of, yeah. it seems like it's a hit and run. Uh, yeah. You know, the virus is, but the, you know, the damage is, the damage is done. But yeah. the other thing I would want to highlight for, I mean, this is right up the alley of the work, the work that, that you do. I think we should discuss a little bit about, because my own lab tech, when I said, oh, order this, Order this uh, polyclonal antibody from Novus. She said, why? She said, why? She asked, why do you want to do IHC testing for, for, uh, for COVID-19? You know, she said that, the, you know, aren't the diagnostic tests PCR-based or p- perhaps serologic? And, and I said, well, you know, there's a lot of unique questions about the yeah. pathogenesis yeah, disease. Right. And, and so... Tell us about about how important uh, you know being able to visualize the viruses in terms of informing the pathogenesis of, of disease. So for the RT-PCI, we usually know we can you know tell people oh this patient got infected virus, but for for the immunochemistry, those tissue based assays can tell us, especially our pathologist well exactly the virus is what a type of cell get infected by the, the COVID-2. This is very important the message to us, to our pathologists, then we can understand you know why they cause so severe tissue damage in the lung. So this is the why you know in, in addition to the PCR we want to do the tissue-based assays, immunochemistry, and the ISH. So in terms of the timeline, have you been able to correlate um, how long the, the, the active viral infection persists by PCR versus how uh, long you're able to actually visualize the virus by ISC? 
I we don't have an you know that that data by ourselves, but based on the you know the the published data from from the monkey studies, we can see usually for example for the rhesus monkeys, the viral peak usually is day two between day two to day four. So when you do the use euthanization to check the viral viral infection in the tissue in the lung, you also they correlate very well actually. So it's, um, when you see the wild, you know, the wild peak from the saliva or the other body fluid, so also you can see the very intense infection in the lung at the, at a, at a, at a similar time timeline. Yeah, they co- they correlate very well. Have you had the opportunity to determine whether your assays cross react with with the other coronavirus coronaviruses like the ones that cause MERS or or all the other ones that I that I memorized their names two two nine E OC forty three HK HKU one yeah yeah I'm just a corona I'm just a big coronavirus <laughs> nerd. nerd yeah yeah they, I would say those assay immunocast chemistry because of course we use the SARS CoV antibody to detect SARS CoV two of course they're gonna close they react to the SARS CoV of course. In, in addition to SARS-CoV, COVID, I think they may react to some other bad coronavirus. Okay. Very yeah. close families. So, but I don't think they, they you know, closely react to MOLs because the MOLs are right. a, little bit, a little bit far away from the SARS-CoV. So, right. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned that, that these are beta, that, that this is a beta coronavirus. And I think yes. many of the other human coronaviruses are alpha coronaviruses. So maybe they wouldn't, they wouldn't cross react. Um, yeah, I, yeah, because, yeah, I, I would say they may react, but I, I don't know, but, but we can, I, I would say they, they, they may cross react to other, other, other coronavirus. It yeah. was just a curiosity of mine when I was thinking about about bringing on the assay. Although nobody's going to get uh, diffuse alveolar damage, it's clinical context. Nobody's going to get diffuse alveolar damage from a regular coronavirus that n- would normally cause the the common yeah. cold. So, in clinical context, you wouldn't you wouldn't worry about the cross reactivity, though. Yeah. Obviously, um, this is a big problem, and I know we're not we're not going to talk about it that much. But for the IHC or the ISH, it's not that big of a deal. But for serology, this yeah. big clinical problem is the yeah, right. reactivity because right. obviously coronaviruses are ubi- are ubiquitous, and we all have antibodies to probably multiple coronaviruses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, probably if for that purpose, we needed to develop very specific, you know, SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. What about yeah. lymphocytes? Do you do they act? Do you see virus in lymphocytes at all, or not? I have I haven't appreciated virus in in lymphocytes. Yeah, I would say they gonna just they infect the macrophage. Yeah. Sanam's a hematopathologist, so That's we got to talk. That's exactly what I want to talk about right now. <laughs> I, mean, it, I just it, can't suppress the hematopathologist. Oh. I mean, it gets to lymph nodes. It gets to especially draining lymph nodes, especially, you know, mediastinal, subcarinal yeah. lymph nodes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had seen that. And then again, another, another hematopath-related question is, um, so does decalcification of tissue, let's say if you wanted to look for, for, uh, for the virus in bone marrow, uh, do you know if decal affects the sensitivity of the, I'm sure it probably affects ish, uh, but does it affect the IHC? For my experience, based on my experience, it affects the IHC, but they do not infect the ISH. Oh. Yeah. For- for okay. for this for these for this virus specifically, or is that just your more your general? Just general, and then of course virus. Why yeah. only? I mean, um, what about speaking of uh, you know cell types that that potentially express it? What about endothelial cells? Because you know there's there's a lot of hype about this being endotheliotropic, or you know with with 
with some of the papers in there. Have you seen anything um, in, in endothelial cells? No, but this, you know, but they can see some paravascular inflammation, something like that. There was a paper that Sanjay Mutapade was tweeting about a little while ago that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And one of their transmission electron micrographs purports to show ultrastructural features of endothelial cell destruction and SARS-CoV-2 within the cell membrane. And I think there's been some considerable discussion on Twitter about the quality of those images. So uh, I think it's it's out. There's at least suggestions out there. There's some some data out there um, about endothelial yeah. cells. I think weren't they? Wasn't there a I guess a commentary on that the New England Journal of Medicine paper that I actually saw this through Sanjay's uh, tweet was that the what they had claimed to be viral particles in that paper uh, was actually a cross section of the the rough endoplasmic reticulum. I, I'm not entirely sure either. So, you know, uh, I don't want to quote anyone, or, but that was my understanding that there was basically debate on whether that structure was actually viral particles. Published animal data, they not date show infections and deciduous cells, but they mentioned some paravascular some information. I guess, so you, probably in patient or in animal models, some host response can cause yeah. And the serious damage, but may not caused by direct infection of the virus. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think now it's pretty clear that these patients have, uh, you know, coagulopathy and some definitely some vascular pathology. But what causes it is is you know still debatable. You know, we were talking earlier that that the organism is detected early and it peaks early and then it, it vanishes and there's this profound host immune response, then by the time somebody presents to the hospital and they're, and they're coughing, uh, you know, how effective might antiviral therapy be versus, uh, you know, anti-inflammatory therapies? You know, how, how important in terms of uh, designing, designing uh, trials, uh, how important would be, would be antiviral therapy versus uh, anti-inflammatory, anti-cytokine uh, therapy? Um, from my perspective, I'm, I would, from my, my own perspective, I would say, so I would suggest going both ways, you need anti while therapeuticals combines with the anti-inflammatory response. I think if you want uh, you know, the best outcome, the combination would, uh, would work better than any, work better, work better than either of them. How, are you working with, with other, other labs at the USAMRID that are doing that are doing PCR-based diagnostics and labs that are doing uh, serologic-based diagnostics? We have, you know, PCR diagnostics lab. We have, you know, as an antibody test. That's COVID-2 work. We have not seated together to, you know, to do the comparison, you know, do the, do the correlation analysis. We have not started that step yet. I'm very eager to hear the the follow up. When when uh, when can we expect you to submit some more some more papers so we can learn more about the pathogenesis of this disease? Yeah, I think right now there are many papers already published for yeah. the, about especially from different animal models, including the hamster, ferrets, the transgenic mice, and especially for the non-human primate. So it's um. Especially the, the groups from China, they, you know, they move very fast, they publish lots of them. They, 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 they develop the different animal models. For us, we are working on it, so I think we're gonna have paper come out, I think pretty soon. So Kevin, what are you excited to get back to when all this uh, coronavirus craziness passes? When we have uh, hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine in, in, uh, in just a few months? <laughs> it's, um, I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> yeah, I want to say, you know, in current circumstance, I would say safety still it's 
So first, we should test very carefully, at least in the animal models first, it's because of many questions, many uncertainties, especially, for example, antibody-mediated enhancement, for example. We don't know. I think that's why I'm, I always think safety is first. If we should be co very cautious, we should, you know, if possible, we should test in the animals. If we can, if time or now, of course. Yeah. But right now, the, you know, the situation is um, it's different. It's uh, like, uh, for example, the Ebola vaccine, you know, during the past decades, scientists have been working on it and eventually get approved recently. So scientists work on decades. Isn't Ebola making the comeback? Like, isn't it becoming... Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, the DRC. Like, great, right? 2020. Yeah. It's, um, right now they have the Ebola, have the COVID-19, they have the measles. It's um, a yeah. very, very tough situation. I think we should talk more about the testis. The, oh. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, this is um, because um, <laughs> because for the for the testicle for the sexual transmission of the virus is very yeah. hot areas. Is my my own research interest. Especially uh, two years ago, we published one paper about persistent marble virus infection in the testicle tissues in the in the seminiferous tube. Which, which is the immune privilege size, also, you know, in which the sperm, sperms are produced. Sure. So we find that the marble virus hide in those regions. So, so yes. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, but Mike, you may have to cut this out, but this Go is, for it. Uh, so let me just ask the question. So is that a real thing, sexual transmission of the virus through, through actual, um, yes. Sexual it's, contact? Or? No, this is a, it's a, it's, it's a very real thing. The Ebola virus, yeah. the relapse, the outbreak, the flare-up, it happens because of the sexual transmission of the virus. I mean, Ebola, I understand, but I guess for, you know, for a respiratory virus, I would assume that because... Uh, we so don't know about the... the in contact okay, with, right. Yeah, I yeah. mean... No, you know we what are, I'm saying? It's like, how, yeah. how do you determine how it was transmitted? Yeah, we don't know about, but, but it, um, two papers have been published. They detect SARS-CoV-2 in the Siemens. Yeah. One paper reported that they detected SARS-CoV-2 RNA from the Siemens, from the patient. Right. Right. So in, in patients that were convalescent, that had that had converted to PCR negative. So they had active virus and... and we don't know. They, they, I don't think they tried to isolate right. the virus. They only did the PCR. But they had RNA. Yeah, so they, they had, just... They had, yeah. Viru, you know, they had virus stuff. So I guess, you know, the other, the other question about the, the testis or the interesting uh, thing, I think I saw uh, a bioarchive paper on... Uh, you know, basically, because, you know, we had seen earlier on in the disease that men get more severe forms of infection compared yeah. to women. And it was suggested in that paper that perhaps because the testis serves as a reservoir for because of the, um, the, the, the prominent ACE inhibitors in, or not, sorry, ACE uh, receptors in, um, in the testis, perhaps it, it basically serves as a reservoir for high viral load. Um, or, you know, a, a similar mechanism of that sort. So is that also a, a uh, I guess, a scientifically sound, um, I guess, theory? I, I, I don't know, but I, what I can tell you is we did see very high expression of AC2 in monkey testicle tissues, specifically yeah. in the seminiferous tubes. So, but for human, we don't know. No, no, I, th I think it is. I think, I think that's a known thing. That the, I think the, uh, the testis and parts of the kidney, is that right, Andrew? Um, don't they have higher levels of ACE receptors? Yeah, kidney, sure. lung, yeah. tubules. And the testis. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, but whether or not it actually contributes to the severity of disease, yeah. I think, um, you know, is, is unclear. But I mean, it, yeah. it kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's lots of open questions about the transmission. So it's detected in seminal fluids, so it's theoretically sexually transmissible. It's, yeah. it's in the kidneys. Interestingly, they haven't seen much in the urine. Uh, there are ACE receptors in the, inte in the intestines and some patients have diarrhea. Uh, so it's yeah. potent that there's potentially some fecal oral transmission as yeah. well. And, uh, Kevin and his ferrets are going to, we're going to figure it all out. Someday there's going to be another pathogen that comes out down the road. And Kevin, is there any generalizable advice you can give us from your experience? Yeah, I would say for the for the diagnosis, you know, Angie, I I would say the first step I always go to the gonna do is ISH because it's just the easiest. As long as you have the genome sequence, you can easily get the probe. Then you can easily get the assay work because for the ITC may you know gonna it may take a while to identify, categorize a good antibody. Yeah, basically, I would the first step I would do the ISH to find a good, you know, positive controls. You know, make sure. Then, after the ISH, then I can start to work on the IHC to find good antibodies. Maybe we can find some close reaction from other, you know, from the antibody against the other viral agents. Well, it's happened again. You've squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC talk. Really, really big thank you to Kevin for joining us and for being here and for sharing that wealth of information for us, with us and um, the Pathland audience. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a um, great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for spending so much time with us and indulging our idiosyncrasies. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so See you much for Great to meet you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Don't stand like my brothers. Don't stand like my sister. Don't stand like either of them. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.